your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, we're going to read the verses 12 through 21, and we're doing that in light of what it is that we confess in the Belgic Confession in Article 14. Now, Article 14 is entitled, The Creation and Fall of Man. Romans 5 deals with that, certainly the fall part. And it shows us how the fall of man has profound significance for understanding the deliverance of man. That the way you get into trouble is, you might say, the way you get out of trouble. And that is true for us in the gospel. So let's listen to Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so an act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then to the Belgic Confession, page 166 in your forms and prayers books, page 166. few lines on the bottom of page 166 and then it's page 167 168 that hold out to us the teaching concerning the creation and fall of man as we continue our study of the Belgic confession then at article 14 we believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness good just and holy able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death 
having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them, except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness. As the scripture teaches us, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will. Since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself? Since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves, by ourselves, but that our ability is from God? And therefore, what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work as he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are you? Maybe you've heard that question asked before, maybe in slightly different form. A mother sometimes says of her ch- to her children, who do you think you are? Or maybe somebody on the playground says, who do you think you are? That's a slightly different version of the question, but it comes to the same thing. Who are you? The answer to that question, I suppose, is as many and varied as each one of us is here today, and we might answer that question in all manner of different ways. Maybe we would start by saying our name. Who we are is at least connected in some way to our name. But what if, like me, you have people that are named after, or not named after you, but are named like you? There are indeed other Joel Dykstras in this world, even in Niagara, and so they might say, well, which one are you? And then You might say, well, I'm this or I'm that. You might use descriptors to identify who you are. It used to be that people would use descriptors related to their class status. A long time ago, people would be earls and dukes and lords and whatnot. Eventually, that ended and people began describing themselves not in those terms, not in terms of class, but in terms of labor, work. I'm a farmer. I'm a preacher. I'm a doctor. I'm I'm an electrician. We identify by what we do, but people didn't like that after a while. That felt a little too um, materialistic. And so people began defining themselves in other ways. I'm a free spirit. I'm a conservative. I'm a liberal. This sort of thing that would identify themselves in terms of the positions they took, in terms of the way they viewed the world. More recently in the culture in which we live, people identify themselves almost exclusively now in terms of their sexuality. I'm homosexual, asexual, bisexual, heterosexual. It's all sexuality now that is defining for humanity. 
And in that change, the answer to the question, who are you, can be traced through the centuries. Who are you? Well, one, at one time you would say, well, I'm a lord, or I'm a lady, or I'm a peasant. And at another time you would answer that differently all the way to today. But not only has the answer changed, the location of the source of that answer has changed, which is really the key that I want to draw your attention to this afternoon. It's not just who are you, but, but who decides who you are. See, when you're a lord or an earl or a duke, then who decides who you are is really a king. It's some monarch who gave you that title. He decided that's who you would become. If you're a, a, a defined by your, your work, you're a farmer, you're an electrician, doctor, lawyer, then you are defined by the job you get, by the business that hires you or the business that you start. It is an identity given to you by these things. But you see, in our day and time in today's culture, we're not allowed to impose any kind of identity on anyone. We're not allowed to say to anyone, this is who you are. Everyone gets to decide who they are and no one may critique them. No one may say they're wrong. That would be to oppress them. That would be to, to do harm to them, to be violent towards them. Indeed, in our day, don't you hear people talk in those terms? They say that words and, and, and microaggressions are oppressive and violent. It used to be that to be violent, you had to actually be violent. Now all you have to do is speak. So the answer to the question, who are you in our day, has become whoever I want to be. And while we think that that is an issue that exists only outside in the world, the truth is because it exists out in the world, it is going to exist in the church too. And it is already. We already have those who wish to identify themselves in, in ways that are more modern, more culturally relative, that are more current. And what is our answer as church community? What is our answer as parents, as grandparents, as friends? When somebody says, this is who I am, here's what I say. Well, we could at least respond by saying, well, let's listen to what God says about who we are. That's what Article 14 is certainly about in the Belgic Confession. It talks to us about who we are who we are as only God can know, as only Christ can teach us. I don't know if you noticed that in its treatment on this matter. But it says, in short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves, by ourselves, but that our ability is from God. You don't know who you are until you listen to God. And God speaks to us of who we are in His Word. A Word that begins very early on in chapter 1 after all of creation has been established. God says, let us make man in our own image. And that crowning achievement of all creation is brought forth from the dust of the earth. God breathing life into His nostrils and making for Himself an image bearer that is, as our confession rightly teaches us, as the Word of God explains to us, one who is good, just, and holy. That means, you understand, that man in the very beginning had a desire, a singular desire to serve the Lord. There was no 
aspect, no part of his existence that wanted anything to do except serve the Lord. He was thankful for God. He was amazed by God. He was eager to please and glorify God. And he knew that to do that meant to live according to the Word of God. That meant to live according to the will of God. It wasn't his choice. It wasn't his plans. It wasn't what he wanted, but what God wanted that was paramount. And he had to do that as that unique, as that distinctive creature, as that creature with a foot both on the earth and in heaven, one who was both made from the dust of the earth and breathed into by God, the one who is holy and set apart for the purpose of glorifying God, he was to do that, you might say, as prophet, priest, and king. And man, in that condition, was glorious and equipped with the ability to not sin, to say no to any temptation and to reject any invitation to rebel against God. Man was truly good, just, and holy. Now the Bible moves very quickly off of that. That's chapters 1 and 2, and there are a lot more chapters that follow, chapter 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, chapter 22, that deal with the effects of the fall into sin, that deal with what happens to us So there are moments along the way, you get to Psalm 8, you get to to various portions of Scripture that describe the glory of man, Genesis 9, and these sorts of things. And they're very good, and they remind us of the beauty of man. But the identity of man as created in the image of God is given to us at the very outset, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And, And it's worth for a moment reflecting on on what that means for us as creatures, what, what that means for us as human beings. Because truly, of all of the explanations that there has been given for the existence of man upon the earth, and understand that every culture or every historical religion, every community in this world has had some explanation. They've got some story to, to, to detail for us how it is that humanity came to be. The Bible's explanation of how humanity came to be not only gives to man a distinctive respectfulness, blessedness, honor, and dignity, but also also bears out in the experience of our life. Because as the Belgic Confession rightly reminds us, that there is in this humanity in this fallen humanity though we've lost all of our excellent gifts that God gave us there are small traces of what what we were and what we are as creatures of God remaining in us and I think that when you take what the Bible says about who man is born or created in the image of God good just and holy and you look at society you look at humanity You look at your friends, you look at your neighbors, and then ultimately look at yourself. You discover that, in fact, what God says bears itself out. There's a truth there that we can acknowledge and recognize. It comes in those moments when we see artists create glorious and wonderful works of beauty, when we read some some author that captures this idea or concept with his words, or with her words that moves us, why, why it is that technology can be advanced and why things can be discovered and man is able to take apart the beauty of this creation and reassemble it in ways that are remarkable and amazing. 
why it is that we live in such a technically advanced society, not just in terms of our cell phones and that sort of thing, but also in terms of our medicines, in terms of our civilization, why we are so richly blessed. Because we see yet in man, in humanity, the beauty of what God created. And here is in in its very real form a counter to the idea of evolution an idea that says man starts poorly and gets better. But we say, no, man was created good, indeed very good. And indeed, here's a counter to the way the world wants us to be seen and wants us to define ourselves. The world that says we're just mammals, that's what evolution teaches. Or that we're just sexual objects, that's what our current culture teaches. Or that we're just useful if we can contribute materially to society. Those are the ways so often, aren't they, that people are defined and described in these days. That's how we feel treated at times. Maybe we work in a large corporation and we work for somebody that seems to view us as merely a cog in the machine of their business, not really concerned with who we are, not really concerned with what we do, just that we meet our quota, that we meet our goals and, and, and our targets, and that's about it. Or, or that we are in this life, as so many have, have treated us, mere objects to be discarded or used as we see fit. So much of the world in which we live is a perversion of humanity, is a denial of the respectability and the dignity of humanity. But the Word of God sets us straight and says, here's who you are. You're an image bearer of God, created good, just, and holy. Created with a heart that loves to serve the Lord. A heart that desires to live in fellowship with each other. Isn't that what we've discovered over these past number of years through COVID? Is that you can't really break community without breaking people. That the idea that you can isolate human beings without consequence is utter foolishness. That humanity is made to live in communion. Not because we want it, not because we think it would be good, not just because of its benefits, but because we are made this way. This is who we are, as defined, as described, as created by God. And so if we're going to understand who we are, we need to understand this. That we were created as the apex, as the glory of God's good creation. That we were created in relationship with Him and with each other. And that we were created just, holy, and good. Even as we must understand that from that glorious height we foolishly fell. Listen to what the confession says again and hear how it, it decries the absolute foolishness of our hearts and lives. He was in honor, but did not understand it, and did not recognize his excellence, but subjected himself willingly to sin, and consequently to death and curse, lending his ear to the word and to the devil. Not understanding his privilege, he rejected God and the commandment of life. There is no avoiding the 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 responsibility for the fall into sin in this language. The writer of the confession does not pull any punches, does not try in some way to excuse us for the mistakes we made. 
He doesn't say, as man did in the beginning, well, it was the woman you gave me, or the woman saying, well, it was the serpent who did it, not me. We aren't given any kind of cover here by the author of the confession. We are exposed in the way that we truly are. He says, here's the truth of our fall into sin. We chose it. We wanted it. We accepted it knowing the consequence. We rejected God. We plunged ourselves into sin. Indeed, isn't that a better way to describe the truth of our fall into sin? So often we talk about the fall into sin. Making it sound as though we tipped over or that somebody pushed us or maybe we tripped. But standing at the very height of all of creation as the image bearer of God, we decided to do a swan dive into the muck and mire of sin. Choosing instead to be covered in its filth and to suffer its consequences both physically and spiritually so that we became a shattered version of ourselves. No longer able to know God. No longer able to know ourselves. No longer able to love. It's telling, isn't it, that the very first thing that happens after the fall into sin is we read the story of a murder. Indeed, isn't it difficult to hear as the writer to the or the writer, rather, of the confession says that we are darkness by nature. All the light in us has turned to darkness as the Scripture teaches. The light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Now this is the part, of course, that we don't like because it presses hard the awful, the warned consequences for our choice. We don't like that. We, we want to be free to be sure. We want to be free to make our own decisions. We want to be free from dad and mom. We want to be free from our teacher or our employer. We want to be able to succeed. We want our employer to give us space so that we can do the thing that we're going to do and then he'll see how great we are and will reward us accordingly. We don't like it when our manager, when our overseer, when our whatever says to us, no, I want you to do it exactly this way. I don't care what you learned in school. I don't care what you think you know what to do. You're going to do it this way and this way only. That feels too restrictive to us. That feels foolish to us. That feels too binding. We want to be free. Now, we don't really want to be free in terms of the consequences. You see, when we mess up and our boss fires us, then we think to ourselves, well, that wasn't really fair. Or we get that F on that paper. Or our parents put us in our room for a timeout or something like that. Then we say, well, wait a second. No, that's not very fair. It wasn't my fault. It was my brother's fault. It wasn't my fault. My manager didn't really tell me what I was supposed to do. We don't like the consequence of our own fallen choices. And we believe, ultimately, that the punishment we suffer always and forever exceeds the crime. We're like all of those baseball players or basketball players, probably better basketball and hockey players. They're playing the game right, and the ref blows the whistle and calls a foul. And I don't think there's ever been a single basketball player in the history of the NBA that has ever agreed with a call that the ref made that said, you're right, I did that very thing I shouldn't have. We always say, no, that is not, I don't deserve this, this is terrible, this is awful. How is it possible that I could be punished for this as we slam the door closed on the penalty box. The truth is, I shouldn't have to suffer for my choices. Isn't that the world in which we live? Isn't that the 
culture in which we're, the culture that our government is trying to establish, where you can make poor choices and we'll provide you a place that's safe and secure to do that, where you can choose not to work and we'll provide you a financial package that allow you to do that. You don't have to remain faithful to your spouse and provide for your children. We'll make laws that make it easy for you to escape that. On and on, our government continues to reward poor choices instead of punishing them, instead of saying to its citizenry, you have to take responsibility for your action. Our society, our culture, our government says, we'll find a way to make it easier on you. Because that's the heart of men. That's the heart of men. The men, that humanity, that we, when we fell into sin, believed and want to be free, autonomous, without responsibility, without consequence. And if we are going to be held responsible, then you can be certain we're not going to believe in God anymore. This is the most frequently cited reason for unbelief in our day. If you ask people that were once Christians why they're no longer Christians, their answer will probably start with, I can't believe a God who would, and then fill in the blank. You might ask such a person, but why wouldn't he? He's sovereign. I mean, you don't get to decide what God does or doesn't do. And by the way, if you're a sinner, shouldn't he punish you for your sin? Don't you think that criminals should go to jail? But none of that matters to our world. Our world says I should be free, and God, if he exists, should exist to make me free. And it also explains the wickedness that we've almost become immune to in our world. The depths of depravity to which we shrug off so very easily. There was an artist not that long ago who, in this work of performance art, said that she would stand in a room and let anyone do anything to her she wouldn't resist them. On the table before her she placed a number of objects, some of them like a feather, were fairly innocuous. There was a gun, a loaded gun on the table as well. At first, people would come up and they would shake her hand or they would give her a hug or, and she would submit to whatever it is that they were doing. And more and more people realized she was really seriously only going to stand there and not prevent them from doing anything they wanted. By the end, the disgusting things that the people there did to this woman is unbelievable. It is beyond, you can't imagine civilized human beings would do that. And yet it demonstrates, does it, the depths of depravity that exists in all men. That what restrains us is bigger than us, but when we are free to give expression to what lives in our hearts, what comes out is, rather truthfully, darkness. There is a darkness in all of us. A darkness that we may not want to admit or accept, but that is true. A darkness that can only be pierced by the light of the gospel. The light of God's grace. That is the only way that we can be saved. Even or the, the result of our sin is such that we don't even know that we are so utterly and hopelessly lost. You look at our neighbors and our co-workers, those that don't believe in Jesus Christ, that don't believe in the Lord, don't believe that God exists. Do you think that they 
that they realize what they're missing, that they grieve when they go to bed at night thinking, I wish I could believe in God and have such a blessed life as my coworker does, my neighbor does. Why is their life so much better than mine? I don't think that at all. Some do, the ones that the Lord is working in, bringing them to faith, but in the main, they look at us and say, you people are fools. You people with your rules and regulations, with your wasting your time on a Sunday afternoon, and though their life is destroyed around them, well, they burn their bridges and suffer the loss that they bring upon themselves, they never seem to recognize that they are the cause of their own trouble, that they are their own worst enemy. Indeed, that is the depth of the darkness to which we fell. We wouldn't want to be saved if it weren't for God's coming to save us. We would never know the truth of the light if it weren't for God's grace. That is the grip of sin into which we fell. Enslaved to sin, we are unable to, to will contrary to this cruel taskmaster. There is in the uh, treatment of the Belgic Confession a sudden flurry, isn't there, of Scripture references that describe this for us. It begins at the bottom of page 167 where it says, Therefore we reject everything that taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself since Christ says, No one can come to me unless my Father who has sent me draws him. And who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? And who can speak of his own knowledge in the view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? Here the writer of the confession reminds us that while we may not be as bad as we can be, it is not absolute depravity that we confess. Yet the truth is, when it comes right down to it, we cannot but obey the demands of sin. Created able not to sin, in the fall into sin, we have become become unable to not sin. That doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be, but it does mean that we cannot defy our taskmaster. We don't even want to. But we cannot defy the chains that grip us and the sin that drags us ever downward. I think we all experience this in our own ways. We all know this from time to time. Think of that angry word that comes to your mind or comes to your tongue. Sometimes you can even see yourself and you think, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, and then you say it. You cannot stop that sin from finding expression. Think of the addictions that people embrace that ruin their lives. They can't stop it. Everybody around them knows they're destroying their lives. They know they're destroying their lives and they can't stop it. They can't choose not to. Think of the greed that so often infects our hearts where we don't even realize it, but we see somebody with a new vehicle, hear about a new vacation, see some new thing that they have, and suddenly we are envious. Suddenly we find ourselves looking at our perfectly good whatever, telephone, car, home, and we think, oh, but it's not nearly good enough. Think about pride. Think about perversity. 
Think about all of the ways in which sin can so easily just look in our direction and we find ourselves falling over into sin quite willingly. Indeed, maybe the most compelling evidence of all of this is our self-justifications, our constant attempts to say, but I didn't do anything wrong. When we run into a brick wall and find ourselves bloodied and bruised and get up and say, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. That it was unfair that whoever did this to us made us suffer. That we're in the right. We find ourselves or show ourselves to be fools and testify that truly we don't understand the truth of our own depravity. The truth is we do destructive things to ourselves, to our relationships, to our lives. And we just don't think they're that destructive. It's a rather dark and dismal description, isn't it, of the truth of our condition. That we are so wrapped up in sin that we cannot escape it in ourselves. But even as we heard this morning, and indeed as the Gospel repeats throughout, it is precisely in that moment that the glory of God shines the most brightly. For isn't it said by the author of the the confession, there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work. For as He teaches when He says, without Me, you can do nothing. That means you understand, of course, that with Jesus Christ, we can do remarkable things. Remarkable things. As our Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, we obey not some, but all of the commandments. Indeed, as the Catechism says, are you so unable to do any good work that you are totally depraved, that you are completely lost in sin? The answer comes yes unless I am born again by the Holy Spirit. For by being born again, we are suddenly made able to not sin. We are suddenly made able to stand fast in the faith, to love and to serve, to walk in the newness of life, to rejoice and to worship our God, to offer our lives as living sacrifices of praise. The power of God's saving grace is such that He captivates and captures the whole person and reorients us so that we are completely devoted to Him. The truth of all of this darkness of humanity's sin, which is borne out by our experience and testified to by our world. Oh yes, our world rejects it. Our world says that's not true and we don't believe it. But it echoes the experience that we all have of life and shows forth the truth of what man is within our world. That dark and dismal reality makes the brightness of the Gospel shine only brighter so that we will stand in awe of what God has done and no longer take to ourselves the glory that is due His name. Because that's what we so often do. We now, not the world, but we who live within the church and who have been blessed and redeemed who have been given grace, who have tasted of the heavenly gifts. Because so often, we find ourselves looking down at others. We find ourselves seeing that addict, seeing that fool, the one who has ruined their life, and saying to ourselves, well, if only they would do what we did, which was make better decisions. Well, you didn't make better decisions. You're not sitting here at all because you made a better decision. You're not here because your parents were better parents than anybody else. You're not here because you did anything 
to deserve sitting in church and worshiping God. You're here because God did something glorious. Because God pierced your darkness. Because God sent His Son to die for you. Because God has redeemed you. The truth of man's fall into sin, the truth of the heights from which we fell, ought to impress upon us before anyone else just how great and glorious our God is. As a church, we need to always be brought back to humble ourselves and to rejoice in our Savior. That's what's going to motivate us to witness to our world. That's what's going to equip us to speak to our world the truth concerning Jesus Christ. The world doesn't like the answer we have to give. Who are you? Our answer is, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior who's been redeemed by the power of God in Jesus Christ and who is being made alive by His Holy Spirit so that more and more I give myself to Him. The world doesn't like that answer because that's an authority that speaks from God, not from man. That runs completely contrary to the very spirit of man's fall into sin. But it testifies that we've been made alive. And it shows the world that there is hope and that there is help in Jesus Christ. God alone can save fallen humanity. And if we're unwilling to acknowledge that, if we instead imagine that we're here, our lives are so good, our businesses are so successful, our families are so well put together, that everything is so good because we've made right choices, because we've understood things, because we've been taught well. And we're going to go into this world and we're going to say to the world, just be like me. Who are you? You are someone that should be like me. Isn't that exactly what the world says to us? Wouldn't we be better off saying to the world, You need to understand who you are. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. A Savior that is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And you can only experience salvation in Him. When we see just how great our God is, then we'll share Him with our world. We'll know the power of His love. Let's praise Him for that in prayer. So we pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, We acknowledge that too often we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we think we've got a handle on things. Not that we shouldn't be diligent, not that we shouldn't be wise, not that we shouldn't try, but Lord, we sometimes think that our efforts are more effective than they really are. And we take from you then glory, we take from you then the praise that is due your name. So help us, O Heavenly God and Father, especially in the culture in which we live, such a perverse culture. Help us not to fall into the temptation of our world. Help us not to think the way our world thinks. Help us not to define ourselves the way the world defines itself. Help us instead say, I'm a sinner who has been saved in Jesus Christ and is being made alive by His Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing now the first four stanzas in response to God's Word, the first four stanzas of 492, and then 